Hello, I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've got some news about the news. By popular demand, Paper Cuts, our brilliant podcast where we look at the madness and majesty of the daily press, is going five days a week. That means you can hear my hilarious guests getting into the obsessions, the weirdness and occasionally the triumphs of the great British press every day from Monday to Friday. That's Paper Cuts, now out mid-morning every weekday. Follow us now on your favourite podcast app. Paper Cuts, we read the papers so you don't have to. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. Britain snort a lot of those thin white lines, with the biggest cocaine users in Europe, and recent threats to maybe take away the passports and driving licences of people caught with it seem to have had no effect at all. Many of the people who take coke don't even see themselves as drug users, and certainly not addicts. It's perceived as a clean, glamorous drug you can just dip in and out of, and plenty of people do. But cocaine does harm, and very much not just to its users, if they become dependent on it. Talk to a cocaine user, and let's face it, that's not difficult to do, and they'll say that if drugs were legalised, the violence associated with the trade would disappear. And they've got a very good point. But is that the whole story? Would decriminalising it fix all these problems? With me to discuss that is Genevieve Kotarska, a research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. She's co-authored a report on the trade. Welcome to the bunker, Genevieve. Thanks, Roz. It's great to be here. Let's start with the basics. Where does the coke snorted in the UK come from? Yeah, so cocaine comes from the coca plant, which is grown primarily in the Andean region. And traditionally, the coca plant was used by indigenous peoples for medicinal purposes. And it's still mostly grown in that region. So Colombia is the biggest grower of coca. And then Peru and Bolivia are the second and third biggest. And then there's a few other countries in the region that do little bits. But it's mostly from those three countries. And how is it turned into the white powder that we associate with coke? Yeah, so you harvest the coca leaf and then essentially you mix it with gasoline and then you dry that out and then you dissolve the remnants from that in with various solvents and you dry that out and then you get pure cocaine. But the cocaine that you have your as your final product um, from that process is very different to the cocaine that we have on the streets in Europe the purity of cocaine is around 50 to 60%. So it's cut with lots of different things, mostly harmless. You have things like baking powder, flour, but also potentially more sinister things, other drugs and more harmful substances. And there's a link with deforestation in Colombia, isn't there? Tell us about that. Yeah. So the states in Colombia that have the highest levels of deforestation are also the states that have the highest levels of coca cultivation. So there's clearly some sort of parallel between the cocaine trade and deforestation. Deforestation in Colombia has gone way up since the 2016 peace process. So in 2016, the government signed a peace deal with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. And that meant that vast waves of the countryside that were previously under FARC control were no longer under that control and that means that like lots of licit and illicit businesses have been able to go into those spaces and that's in the big increase in deforestation not all of which is related to cocaine but at least some of it is and is there is it a growing trade and more and more people taking cocaine internationally yes is the short answer. Um, So in 2022, uh, that was the year with the highest cultivation on record. So it's 240,000 hectares in Colombia. So the war on drugs started 
ages ago, way back in the 90s or noughties, depending on where you are. And yet the trade has gone up, cultivation has gone up and usage has gone up. And it's become something that traditionally, you know, it use was in the US and Europe primarily. And then more and more markets as countries develop are opening up. And the further you can get the cocaine from where it's produced, the more money you can make. So we all know that it's gangs that control the drug trade in South America. But when we say gangs, what do we actually mean? I mean, this is a very good question because I think, you know, we used to have quite a clear image of who was in charge of the cocaine trade because you had the Medellin cartel and the Cali cartels and the big cartels in Mexico. And I think what we've seen is sort of a fragmentation of that. So in Colombia, you've got the Gaitanista Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, and they related to paramilitary groups from in the noughties and various members from that got involved in the drug trade and they have this big system that has lots of local cells and they're all involved in the cocaine trade at different sort of rates as well as other illicit activities. But then in Colombia, you've also got various guerrilla groups, you've got other criminal groups, you've got FARC dissidents who didn't go through the peace process. And then you've got the Mexican cartels, you've got Albanian criminal groups, you've got Italian criminal groups like the Indrangheta, and then all of these big groups that control the trade writ large and the sort of the transnational element of the trade are working with very local groups. So Ecuador has seen a massive increase in violence in the last few years. And that's because that's a really big port. Lots of the ports in Ecuador are where cocaine comes out of towards Europe. And they're working with these smaller criminal groups that are native to Ecuador with these big transnational organisations that control other elements of the trade. Clearly, the governments of these countries are not capable of cracking down on the trade. But I assume it's a sort of constant war. How, how hard are they trying to stop the trade? And is, is it that that leads to the violence? Or would there be violence anyway? I think it's a complicated question. I think so. It's important to say that it's not just these countries. A lot of the sort of impetus for the war on drugs comes from countries like the US. And the US has put billions of dollars into the war on drugs in Latin America with very limited success. So in 2006, Mexico launched its war on drugs. And since then, violence in Mexico has gone way up. And, you know, there's various reasons for that. But basically, the way that we're doing this, this sort of militarized approach to the drug trade creates fracturing. And then there's smaller pockets of the trade that people want to control. And there's loads of violence as people try and control this trade because there's so much profit involved. And because of that profit, there's so much corruption. And this goes right to the highest levels of government in some of the countries in Latin America. But I think it's also important to say that corruption in ports and law enforcement in Europe is also part of the corruption that facilitates the trade. Would there be violence anyway? I mean, it's a big question. I don't think legalization is sort of the magic solution that sometimes it's proffered to be. But, you know, we know the extreme violence that is associated with the cocaine trade. We know that the war on drugs hasn't done anything to tackle that. And there's real reluctance to try another approach. And where another approach has been tried, so for example, in Colombia, the 2016 peace deal sought to bring lots of the coca farmers into legal trades and move them away from coca and out of the influence of these criminal groups that are part of the cocaine trade. And for various reasons, that's failed. Part of that sort of bureaucratic reasons, people didn't get the money they were promised. But also, there's not the infrastructure for people to be part of legal markets. And so it's a really complicated question. And I think the problem is that politics likes simple answers. And in this case, there's not one. So how does the cocaine get from South America and the Caribbean to kitchen tables and cisterns in Britain? Because we mentioned Ecuador is one of the places where it goes out. Does it also come by air? And how does it enter the UK and Europe, for example? 
Yep. So it does come by air sometimes. So in people's luggage, sometimes people will swallow the drugs or carry them internally. And then you also get sort of headline grabbing stories of cocaine submarines crossing the Atlantic and things like that. But the vast majority comes um, via container ships. So if you look at like Rotterdam port, massive port, you've got thousands and thousands of containers coming in every day. And they are able to investigate, I think it's 2% of all containers coming in, and they try and do 10% of containers from South America. So for criminal groups, it's really a numbers game. You know, the vast majority is still going to get through. So container ships come out primarily from Ecuador, Colombia and Brazil, um, and they'll often transit um, via countries in Central America, the Caribbean and West Africa. And drugs might be moved to a different container ship or moved around. And then they arrive in these big ports in Europe. And that's where they sort of get distributed from with the help of corruption. And we've heard about county lines a lot recently as a way that drugs are reaching further into England in particular, beyond the cities. How do those work? Are those really a new thing, uh, a new development over the last decade or so? I mean, yes and no. I think the county line's title is new, but really, you know, using local people to infiltrate communities isn't new. But technology has helped make that sort of more of an issue. So the exploitation of vulnerable people, um, children, teenagers, through phones, you know, you can keep an eye on someone. You can have like a level of control knowing their movements that you couldn't have before. And that allows people to, you know, really exploit them in quite a horrendous way. So I think that element of it is new. But as far as just distributing to smaller communities, that's not new. It's just been done with different things previously. But it's a lot easier to buy heart drugs, isn't it? Because obviously you've got the internet and you can contact your dealer much more easily. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, that part is partly that, you know, again, phones, you can just send a WhatsApp. It's super easy. I think probably we also have to consider the absolute decimation of the police forces through cuts from the government. And, you know, that limits their ability to tackle this on like a wider scale. But, you know, users can act with pretty much impunity. There's constantly threats of things like taking passports away, and it doesn't really materialise into any meaningful action. Partly because police have other things they need to worry about, and people having a nice time on a Saturday night isn't really, you know, a great priority, despite the harms, because the harms tend to be further away, right? But it is really easy. And I think, you know, it's about 4% of the population use cocaine on a yearly basis. So, you know, it's a small, but it's a pretty significant percentage when you consider all the harms associated. How many people are at the very top, the sort of organisational level of the trade in Britain? Because I think we sometimes imagine there's like two or three people coordinating the whole, you know, the whole trade in drugs in the UK, sort of kingpins who, mm. who are beyond police reach. Is that true? Or is it just far more diffuse? So I, on the UK side, I couldn't say how many people are involved at a top level, but I would imagine it's quite diffuse. And, mm -hmm. you know, the people, it tends to be the people that the police can get their hands on tend to be at a lower level. We do see like big busts of, you know, top level dealers, people controlling the trade. But, you know, it's low hanging fruit to get the street dealers. And that really doesn't do anything to tackle the wider trade. Do you have a sense of how much of the really bad violence in Britain, the stabbings, the shootings, is linked to the drug trade? I think it's really hard to say because obviously the drug trade goes way beyond cocaine. There's loads of other drugs. And gangs are involved in lots of other kinds of criminal activity and extortion and human trafficking and sex trafficking and all these things. So 
relating the violence directly to the drug trade is quite difficult. But I also just think it's important to note that like there's not really a clear line between cocaine and violence. So if you look at um, a country like El Salvador, as far as the, the amount of cocaine that goes through El Salvador is quite small. But because of that, there's a lot of violence as gangs try to get a handle on that like small bit of the trade that they can control and the money that comes from that. And I imagine it's the same in the UK that actually violence and the amount of drugs on the streets aren't really, you know, they don't correlate as neatly as we'd like them to. Do you think cocaine users are morally responsible for this chain of violence and illegality that goes all the way back to South America? Or is it enough for them to say that it's the fault of governments for making drugs like coke illegal and it would all be okay, or most of it would be okay, if they were legalised and if you could buy cocaine, you know, over the counter in a special pharmacy, which is an argument that's often made. But given that isn't the case, do they have a moral responsibility? It's a massive question. It's a big philosophical debate, right? It depends who you ask, what they'll think, you know, and it goes, what responsibility do, you know, users of anything have for harms further down the supply chain? Mm -hmm. You know, if you buy a top or you buy some chocolate or anything like that, there's probably harm at some point, right? For me, the difference with cocaine is that you know it's associated with bad things happening. You can buy a top and there might be slavery somewhere in the supply chain. You can buy chocolate and there might be exploitation somewhere in the supply chain, but it might be fair trade. It might be ethically sourced. There's no such thing as fair trade cocaine. There's no such thing as ethically sourced cocaine. It's all associated with these really, really awful harms. And if you look at the level of violence in Latin America and how this has impacted you know, the state of democracy in Latin America and human rights in Latin America and all these things, for me, that's the difference. You know it's doing bad things when you use cocaine. But does that mean users have a moral responsibility? It depends who you ask. And it's really easy for people to have this sort of cognitive dissonance and ignore it and pretend it's someone else's problem. And as far as legalization goes, I think it's really good that we're having a debate around legalization. I think that needs to happen. But I don't think it's the simple solution that people sometimes suggest it is. So if you look at like the legalization of cannabis in places like the US and Canada and Uruguay, it's largely successful, right? But criminal groups can still exploit those legal markets because of the way they're done. So say you legalized cocaine in the UK, it's still illegal everywhere else. So the harms aren't going to go away in Latin America because they'll go to the US market or the European market, right? But say you could source cocaine ethically for the UK market alone, but you have to sign up for this bureaucratic scheme and you have to go through a mental health check or a criminal record check or something. People are still going to buy the illegal cocaine because they don't have to do any of those things for it. One of the issues they've got in New York State where they've legalized marijuana is that there's not enough places where you can buy cannabis legally. So people buy illegal cannabis. One of the other issues is that if it's seen to be like an inferior product, people will still buy the illegal product because they think it's better. So, you know, we can legalize it. In the UK, it would make almost no difference to the level of harms. And there's also no guarantee that A, criminal groups couldn't exploit those legal markets and B, people won't still choose to buy the illegal product. But also, you know, it's kind of meaningless if one country legalizes it. Portugal has gone down that road, hasn't it? 
So Portugal's gone down the decriminalization road, which is slightly different from legalization. But yeah, they've gone for like a health-based decriminalization approach. It's been really successful. Lots of praise for the Portuguese system. Even a Home Office report from 2014 said how good the Portuguese system is and how ineffective punitive law enforcement measures against drug users are. So for the UK, personally, I think decriminalization is the way to go. As far as the legalization question goes, I think that needs to be much bigger than just the UK. You need to work with supply countries and demand countries, and you'd have to get the US on board. And given their historic, very, very strict war on drugs approach, I don't see that happening. You're right that there is a debate about decriminalization and legalization, but realistically, legalization certainly is off the table, and it would be for a Labour government too. I can't see Keir Starmer in the first week making any new drugs policy. So is there any point in trying to make cocaine use socially unacceptable? I mean, it's it's really, you're, you're dealing with a group of people, let's face it, who are often quite hedonistic and are not generally very interested in what the state has to, to tell them. And obviously, there's a risk that making something a taboo can have the opposite effect, and it just becomes more attractive and more more glamorous. But should the government be saying, morally, you should not be taking this stuff, and here's why? I don't personally think it would make a difference. Mm-hmm. I don't think someone who wants to take cocaine and have a nice time on a Saturday night is going to listen to Rishi Sunak no, preaching I, about moral I think behavior. You're right, yeah, right. I think it's an interesting question. There's been like debate recently about whether highlighting those environmental harms of the cocaine trade would help for middle class users who do their recycling and have an electric vehicle. I think it sits in different boxes in people's heads. But I mean, we have seen success in other places with things like drunk driving. That's much less acceptable socially than it used to be. If you think about the anti-fur campaign, that was ridiculously successful. But With cocaine, I just don't see it working. And they've tried. So Colombia had a campaign in, I think it was 2006, and they came around European countries to launch this campaign and really highlight the harms going on in Colombia associated with cocaine use in Europe. And since then, use has gone up, production has gone up, profits have gone up. So it's made no real difference. And I'm not convinced the government trying to tell people that they're bad would work. And would we listen to the government if they told us it was bad? They're doing a lot of morally dubious things themselves. It's a whole other issue. But no, I don't think it would work personally. Should people who take cocaine be more worried for the sake of their own health? Because it does have risks, doesn't it? And there are undoubtedly people who use cocaine now and then who are not addicted to it. I know some of them. You probably know some of them. And there are others who do go on to develop a problem. And some of them are often very high profile. And we hear about celebs who have had to go into the priory or whatever. Are there things that are not commonly understood about the effects of cocaine that people don't realise when they're just thinking about taking a line? I think it's difficult to say. So if you look at like the stats, it's not a complete picture because there are lots of people who will suffer in silence if they're struggling with cocaine addiction. But it's around 20,000 powder cocaine addicts seek treatment each year and 20,000 crack cocaine addicts seek treatment each year. So that's around, I think it's like 30% of everyone who seeks treatment for any drug or alcohol abuse issue. So it's a significant percentage. Other things that we should be doing, even as we accept that cocaine is unlikely to be decriminalised in this, in this country, other things that we could do to make the whole cycle of harm slightly less harmful that we're not doing at the moment? In the UK, I think things that we've seen at like festivals, so testing um, for purity of drugs and testing if drugs have other substances in them, I think that's like a good way to reduce harms associated with all casual drug use. And things like that can sort of be done 
without the involvement of the state at like a small level at festivals or parties or whatever um, and that you know reduces the harms to the individual user as far as like the wider harms associated with like gang violence and corruption in the uk um i think properly funding the police would be a good start and you know we saw all these cuts to social programs after the 2008 crash um, and that's had a big impact because you know people who would previously had support systems when they were growing up haven't now and you know that's a way that people enter into crime out of necessity or out of a lack of other things to do with their time essentially so as far as the uk goes without having like a massive government rethink and looking at decriminalization or legalization i think those small things could help as far as the harms go but you know those wider harms that we see in latin america um, in transit countries in the caribbean really i think the best thing we can do is support those countries to be well governed and address corruption and things like that but it's so much easier said than done and you know with the cut to the aid budget foreign aid budget and things like that you know there's really limited power that we have now so i think it's quite a naughty problem and i'd love to be like this is what we should do and that would solve everything but it's one of those things that needs like long-term thinking sustainable thinking and to consider big radical ideas like legalization and decriminalization that we know our political system isn't ready for at the moment and to be honest if you look at countries in latin america as well vote winners is i'm tough on corruption i'm tough on gangs and again that means those long-term slow steady processes that can help address the harms the more sort of intrinsic harms of the trade they're not vote winners yeah i wanted to ask you if the kind of illiberal turn of some governments in south america is going to make any difference to the trade because in el salvador for example we've seen huge numbers of young men in particular locked up for involvement in gangs and violence and the you know with no with no prospect of release that we can tell or that may change will this massive crackdown on crime change anything or will just different people get into it different people will get into it so yeah and el salvador is kind of a crazy case study they've got almost one percent of their adult population is in prison at the moment after this crackdown and lots of people have a lot of praise for it because criminal groups can't operate in the same way and there has been a reduction of violence um there's lots of candidates in various parts of latin america who are you know, promising to replicate those policies in their country. But the human rights implications are insane. And the trade will just move. We've seen this. We've seen this happen. Uh, you know, you crack down in Colombia and then, you know, the Mexicans get involved and vice versa. And one of the problems with the kingpin policy is that you take out you know, people like El Chapo or Pablo Escobar and it just sort of fractures and fragments. And there's always someone willing to step into the void and take it over because the profits are so huge. So I don't think these sort of strong handed approaches are working. And I think, you know, that's very apparent. We've been doing this for sort of 30 years without success, but people aren't considering other ways to look at it. Genevieve, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. And you can support The Bunker by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast and contributing as little as £3 a month, far less than any drug habit. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for joining us on The Bunker. See you next time. The 
Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Chris Jones and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.